Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. Those who have your Bibles, you can um, open with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. I'll be reading a portion from that in a little moment's time. One of, one of the nicest things for me, you know, about preaching is um, when, I, when I hear the words that, that uh, people bring before the sermon or uh, during the ministry time and it confirms <laughs> exactly what I wanted to say. I'm like, whoa, thank you God, I heard from you. <laughs> I'm so glad. Um, what Lisa Marie said um, is, is basically my introduction, you know. So often, because I, I mean, you're going to see now when we read First Kings, it's about Elijah, it's about King Ahab, very bad king of Israel, and um, in judgment God brought a drought. And so often it takes a drought for us to be reminded that we are dependent. So often it takes a drought because we forget that we're dependent. When things are going well, then we forget that we are, how dependent we are on that we are dependent. And it takes a drought to remind us of what was true all along, that we are dependent. That we need God, that we need His provision. We so easily forget it. And um, then often, you know, times of drought come and it reminds us of what was true all along. That we cannot stand by ourselves, that we are dependent, that we need God, that we need His provision. Um, so that means that we all need provision. We're all dependent, so we all need provision. But um, as I want to show you a bit, God's provision is a bit offensive. And not offensive as in opposed to defensive. <laughs> offensive as in insulting. <laughs> okay? God's, strangely enough, God's provision is a bit offensive, a bit insulting. Um, and I'm going to read the passage now, uh, and, and note, see if you can see the, prov- the, the, the theme of provision running through uh, this passage. I'm actually going to start with just a few verses in, at the end of chapter 16, just to give us context. Um, chap- uh, 1 Kings 16 from verse 30, it said, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as it had been... Sorry, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal the worship, and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, or the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Uh, and Ahab made an Asherah, Asherah pole. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Then chapter 17 verse 1 begins, Now, Je- now um, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain these years except at my, by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, to Elijah, Depart from here and, uh, and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook uh, Cherith, uh, which is east of uh, the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I will command the ravens to feed you there. 
So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith uh, that was east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came to him. Rise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel uh, that I might drink, may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have neither baked, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm going to, uh, to get, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he And her household uh, ate for many days, and the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So, Lord God, we just want to thank you, Lord, for what you teach us through this scripture, Lord God, and we just consecrate ourselves to you, Lord, now, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will come as the one who leads us into all truth and teach us from your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have... A message for us, Lord. Thank you that you have a message for each, each of us. Thank you that you want to teach us something. And we want to be teachable, Lord. We want to humble our hearts before you and be teachable and receive what you have to say for us, to us from the scripture, Lord. And we, we just consecrate ourselves to you and we pray that we'll hear you speaking loud and clear. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so... What I just basically want to focus on three things. God's, God's provision, like I said, is, is offensive, and I'm going to try and show that now and, and say, show why I say that. It's offensive, firstly, to us, because it runs out. <laughs> it's offensive to Baal, because it exposes him. And it's offensive to the proud, because it's by grace. So let's just look at that for a moment. Um, it's interesting to me that, that God sends Elijah to the Cherith brook uh, to, um, to go and hide, and he provides for him through, he says, I've commanded the ravens, and they, they brought him meat and bread in the morning and meat and bread in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So it's, he went outside the promised land, east of the Jordan, to the outside of the promised land, where the Israelites in the desert received manna, bread, and quail, meat, and water, even from a rock. 
And, and, and that's what he got. But he, instead of like the, the Israelites who only got it once a day, he even got a double portion. He got it twice a day. <laughs> but it's interesting to me that God provides supernaturally to Elijah, but through very natural means, through ravens and through the brook. Very natural means, but it's a supernatural provision. And so often we stumble a bit on that. We expect God's provision to be all spectacular. If it's going to be supernatural, then it must be by supernatural means. But so often God's supernatural provision is by natural, very natural, ordinary means, even through other people or through nature, like in this case. And we shouldn't stumble over that. I mean, us as modern people would even be offended at that. I mean, a raven is not the cleanest animal in the world, you know. A raven bringing your dinner, your bread and your meat in its beak, you know, putting it down in front of you. I mean, that's a miracle, but many of us would be tempted to say, I don't know where that beak has been. (laughs) I don't know what that beak has been eating. And so often we miss the supernatural provision of God because it comes in a way that we find a little offensive. That water in that Cherith brook, you know, it's not distilled enough for me, you know. I only drink distilled water. And we miss God's supernatural provision because it comes through natural means and it comes through means that we're not always happy with. So um, God provided for him. He doesn't tell us how long, but quite a while. Long enough so that the water of the brook um, runs out. And, and, And that is probably the most offensive thing that we sometimes find about God's provision, that it actually runs out sometimes. I mean... Isn't God, shouldn't God's provision be sustainable? <laughs> Didn't he plan ahead enough? You know, why did it run out? Why? He knew surely that it was going to run out. I mean, even that brook was subject to the drought that God brought. God's provision runs out, and that's something we have to deal with, something we have a little difficulty sometimes dealing with. But even God's provision that runs out is God's provision. Even God's provision that runs out is God's provision. Because you see, I, I was speaking to a, to a couple um, a couple of weeks ago, um, and 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 they had been saying to me how they sensed God was taking them into a new season, and they were experiencing all kinds of challenges where they were now. And I and I had to say to them, listen. You've got to understand that if God is moving you from one season to another season. If God has moved you from one season to another season, then you cannot expect the grace of the previous season to be there for the future season. You cannot experience, expect the provision for the previous season to continue into the new season. If you stay in the previous season, when you know God is moving you to a new season, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to run out of provision because God's provision, God doesn't want you in that season anymore. So that provision is going to dry up. And it's a sign to you that you must move to the next season. And that's why God says to him, go at once to Zarephath. Go at once to Zarephath. Because my provision for this season of hiding in the Cherith Ravine next to the brook has run out. This was a defensive season. Now I'm going into an offensive season. (laughs) Like in... The other sense of the word offensive. (laughs) 
This was a defensive season where you had to hide from, from, uh, from Ahab and, and, and Jezebel because they wanted to kill you. Um, I was just preserving you in this season. You were just next to the brook drinking of the water, eating the meat and the bread that the ravens brought you. But now I'm going to go from defensive to offensive. I'm going on the attack. And I'm going to show you what I mean by that in a, in a little while. Um, and for that to happen, you need to leave. And therefore, my provision in this season, defensive season, has dried up. But I've made new provision for you for the new season. Um, so that's the one reason. It's because of the change of seasons that God's provision actually ends. So that we know when a season has ended and we need to move on to the next season. But there's an even more important reason. There's an even more important season. You see, we as fallen human beings have a nasty tendency to seek God's provision instead of seeking God. All of us have a natural inclination towards that. We tend to seek God's provision instead of seeking God. And we even do it um, in a very religious way or a very spiritual way, seeking provision. Now, don't get me wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with provision. But there's everything wrong with seeking God's provision more than seeking God. It's so easy to idolize the gift if we value it and seek it above the giver. So often, like... Like it's often said, we seek God's hand instead of his face. We seek what he can give to us with his hand instead of who he can be to us with his face. We do that. We all do that. And that's why God often allows his provision to end. It's so that we won't idolize his provision. So that we won't seek his provision, but so that we'll seek him. And that's why he says, go at once to Zarephath. And here's a very important principle. I want you to get this. God's provision follows God's word. It says, go at once. I've commanded a widow at Zarephath. Go at once to Zarephath. I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. God's provision follows God's word. So that we will seek God and not his provision. See, because the provision is in God. It's from God. If you only see God's provision, even if you see good provision, like, you know, provision so that you can provide for your family, or you seek God's miracles, healing, all that kind of stuff, all of those things are good. But if we seek that instead of seeking God, and it's, it's so easy to do that, easier than we think, then God has to often dry up the provision so that we can go back and, and realize the provision was not God. God was the provision. The provision of God follows the word of God so that we would seek God and follow God, not follow his provision. Because if you only follow and seek God's provision, you will get it sometimes. But if you seek God, you'll get both his word and his provision thrown into the deal. Because he is the source. He's the source. Um... So he says, go at once to Zarephath. Um, I, I think of Psalm 23 where, where, um, where it says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So, so we must follow God and his provision will follow us. 
If we follow God, His provision will follow us. Goodness and mercy will follow us. Why did David, as, when he was saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in green pastures and so on. Why could he say, His goodness and mercy follows me? He could say that, he could say, God's goodness and mercy, His provision follows me because I follow Him. I follow Him as my shepherd and His provision follows me. I don't have to follow the provision. The provision will follow me if I follow Him. If I follow His word. God's provision follows God's word and therefore we must follow God and not his, just His provision. So, do you want God's provision more than you want God? Do you desire God's provision more than you desire God? Do you desire that new job that you've been asking God for more than you desire God? Do you desire certain things for your children who are very close to your heart more than you desire God? Do you desire that spouse, that husband or that wife, more than you desire God? If you do, God's provision will offend you (laughs) because it will dry up. God will stop it to make sure that you follow Him instead of following just His provision. Okay, so firstly, God, God's um, provision is offensive to us because it runs out. Secondly, God's uh, provision is offensive to Baal because it exposes. Baal was um, a Canaanite deity, specifically a Phoenician deity. And I just want to read you a little background um, which I found quite helpful. It says, um, Hugaret was a city uh, north of Tyre. Now, Tyre and Sidon. Remember, um, Jezebel came from Sidon. And her father, Ethbal, was both the king and the priest of, um, of Tyre and Sidon, of Phoenicia. The high priest of, of the nation. And, and the, uh, the high priest of Baal. You know, even his name, Ethbal, you know, shows, shows that. Um, so, so Baal was this, this deity from Phoenicia. Phoenicia was sort of on the coast of the Mediterranean, right next door to Israel. And Ugarit is, is right there near, near uh, just a bit north of Tyre on the Mediterranean coast and flourished between 1400 and 1200 before Christ. In the, in the text discovered there, Baal was depicted as a nature deity whose primary function and powers in the pantheon encompassed weather and fertility. So he was a weather god, which was obviously connected with fertility because the rain produced the fertility of the land. Okay, so that makes sense. So his, his powers were connected uh, to weather and fertility. Baal was the storm deity. He was called the rider of the clouds. That's what he was referred to in this text. He's, he's, uh, you know, I read some of the text. So he's, he's often referred to as the rider of the clouds. He was often portrayed with a lightning bolt in one hand and thunder was identified as his voice. Ancient Syro-Palestine was an agrarian society and because Baal gave the rains, he was worshipped to ensure the fertility of the land and the production of crops. I mean, we, we don't always appreciate how dependent people were on the rain in those days because we're not an agrarian society. But you can imagine if everything, your, you know, your, your, what you lived on on a day-to-day basis came from the land, you know, from farming, then rain was kind of important to you. Okay. Even to us, you know, when, when there's a big drought in the Western Cape, you know, like there is now, we start to feel it. But, I mean, they felt it a lot earlier. They were much more keenly aware of, of the dependence on the land. 
And therefore, they were much more keen, um, they, they were much more tempted to worship Baal, who was portrayed as this weather storm deity, the rider of the clouds, the one who brings the rains and the fertility of the land. Since all of life was tied to the fertility of the land, it is not hard to see why it was tempting. It was so tempting to, the, to Israel to worship Baal. Describing the impact of Baalism on, in Israel, um, Hosea the prophet uh, likened Israel to an adulterous wife who said, I will go after my lovers, the idols, false gods, who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. So, why do I say God's provision is offensive to Baal? Well, because Baal is the rider on the clouds. He's the one who, according to the mythology of Canaan, produced the rain. And here comes Elijah in 1 Kings 17 verse 1. And listen to what it says. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead came to Ahab and he said, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives... Before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except at my word. And as uh, Elijah drops the mic, (laughs) God is dropping the gauntlet to Baal. He says, as the Lord, Yahweh, the the word Lord there in the English is the translation of, of um, of the Hebrew word Yahweh, Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. As the Lord, the God of Israel. So he's saying, you have institutionalized. That's the one thing that, that Ahab did that was worse than all the other kings before him. Because they, they, all the other kings also, or many of the other kings also worshipped Baal. But he institutionalized the worship of Baal in, in um, Israel. He built a temple for Baal in Samaria. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple and an Asherah pole. And um, we know from later texts that... Jezebel, his wife, his Sidonian wife, who brought in the worship of Baal, they state-sponsored 450 Baal priests and sent them out as evangelists into Israel to go and convert all of Israel to the worship of Baal. And we know from later chapters that they were very effective. Most of Israel, the vast majority of Israel, ended up worshiping Baal, not Yahweh. But he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, implying that Baal doesn't live. He's dead. And God is going to take on Baal in his own area of expertise, according to him. He says, I'm the God of the rain. I'm the rider on the clouds. I'm the storm God who brings the the rain and the fertility of the land and the production. And God says, we'll see about that. It will not rain these next couple of years except at my word. And God, in no, in no uncertain terms, is dropping the gauntlet to Baal and says, Okay, fine. You came to be the rider on the clouds. You, you claim to bring the rain. Let's see. We know this conflict ends on Mount Carmel, climaxes on Mount Carmel, where there's a big showdown between Yahweh and God. And it's interesting, Elijah's name comes from El, which means God, and Yah, which is the shortened word of Yahweh. In other words, Yahweh is God. His, his very name was his message. Yahweh is God. Baal is not God. And God was saying, I'm going to prove this. My provision is going to offend Baal by, by exposing him as a fraud, a pretender, a wannabe, a false god, a dead god, an idol. Um, 
in, in verse 7, it says there was no rain. The, the, the brook dried up because there was no rain, exactly according to the word of God through Elijah the prophet. Baal was powerless to give rain when God um, withheld the rain. Maybe I should just explain something else. Um, how the, I mean, obviously there were droughts before that. So how did the Canaanites and the Phoenicians who worshipped Baal explain the droughts that were before that if, um, if Baal was the, the god of, of rain, the rider on the clouds? And, and they, in their mythology, uh, Baal would sometimes, in the mythology, be, have to submit to another god, Canaanite god called Mot, who was the god of death. So they would say when there was a drought that God, that Baal was submitting to and actually being killed by Mot. So he was a dead God when there was a drought. But as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. You see, God, drought in the Canaanite mythology was Baal is dead. He cannot provide rain. Drought, according to the scriptures, is the living God is not absent in death. He's present in judgment. He's a living God. He never dies. Um, and then in verse 12, when Elijah is speaking to, um, to the Samaritan woman, it says um, you know, that, that the, the flour and the oil won't run out until the day the Lord, Yahweh, sends rain upon the earth. Baal's not going to send rain upon the earth. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Bible, is going to send rain upon the earth. So in no uncertain terms, God is dropping the gauntlet and challenging Baal and saying, and challenging him in his area of expertise, according to him. Bringing rain, bringing fertility of the land. And God is proving him to be a pretender and a fraud. But not only that, God sends Elijah during this Drought. He sends him to Zarephath, which was right between Tyre and Sidon. Sidon and Tyre, the two main cities of Phoenicia, where Jezebel comes from, where the worship of Baal comes from, where Baal himself comes from. In other words, which is Baal's homeland. So he sends Elijah, and that's why he dried up the brook, or he had, had the brook dry up. He sends him to Baal's homeland to go and provide for him there. Can you start seeing why this provision of the Lord is so offensive to Baal? <laughs> Not only is it exposing him in his area of expertise as a fraud, but in his own backyard, in his own hometown of Sidon, he's being exposed as a fraud. Um, there's this interesting part. I just want to read this to you. I think you'll find this, this very interesting. In chapter 20, just a couple of chapters later of 1 Kings 20, verse 23 and 28, um, it, it says this. Now, now, there was this idea that in, in the ancient world that certain gods belonged to certain nations. And they only had power within the borders of those nations. Um, and if one nation conquered another nation, it was seen that the, the victorious nation's God was too powerful for the God of the other nation and had conquered them. Like First and Second Kings was written to Babylonian exiles after they'd been conquered by Babylon. And the Babylonians were saying, oh, our gods are more powerful than your God, Yahweh. That's why we could conquer you. Because your God, Yahweh, only has power in Israel. He's the God of Israel. And now God sends Elijah out of Israel to Sidon, to Phoenicia, to Baal's backyard, to show that he doesn't only have power in Israel. He has power everywhere. Imagine reading that 
as an exile in Babylon, also tempted to worship false gods, just like Ahab and the Israelites were. Because their gods look so powerful. Hadn't Hadn't their nation conquered our nation? Doesn't that mean their God is more powerful than our gods? And the message, First Kings is saying, no. God is, is the one God who's God everywhere. The, the idols actually aren't gods anywhere. But, but listen to this. Uh, 1 Kings 20 verse 23 says, And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods, that's the God of, I mean, they say gods plural because they couldn't conceive of any nation having only one God. So they sort of projected their experience onto, onto the Israelites. Their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we, uh, than we uh, when, they, when we fought them in the hills. And that's why they defeated us. Because that's where their God specializes, in the hills. But let us fight them against them in the plain. And surely we shall be stronger than them. <laughs> their gods, in other words, Yahweh is a God of the hills. You know? He's powerful in the hills, but on the plains he's not so tough. We can, we can take him on the plains. We can defeat him. And listen to what God says in verse 28. The man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. You shall know that I am the Lord. The word Lord, Yahweh, literally means the one who is. You shall know that I am the God who is. Not, not only the God who is a God of the hills or the valleys. I'm the God who is. Everywhere. Anywhere. I'm not a limited God. I'm God everywhere. Even in Babylon where my children, my, my nation, uh, uh, my people, Israel, are now in captivity. I'm God there. I'm God everywhere. Even in Baal's backyard of Sidon. I'm God there. I can provide there. But, I mean, it gets worse. Phoenicia, of which, like I said, Tyre and Sidon were the two main cities, where, where Baal was, was like the official deity. They were a, a very good, they were, they were a coastal kingdom, and they were very good at shipbuilding. So they were great traders, and that's one of the reasons why um, Ahab married Jezebel, so that you know, Israel could get part of that trade and, and some of that money. But from other scriptures, we know that very often Phoenicia had to import grain and all kinds of food from Israel to Phoenicia because not only in the drought could Baal not provide for his kingdom of Phoenicia but he could never provide for them they always had to import stuff and it's it's almost ironic you know it, it's like you know <laughs> you know God is saying to, to Israel, why are you worshipping this idol? He can't even provide. He could never provide. Never mind only in the drought. He could never provide in his own hometown of Phoenicia, in his own kingdom. You know, He's Baal, the god of Phoenicia. But he can't even provide in Phoenicia. He never could. Why do you want to worship him? You worship him because you think he can provide for you, but he could never provide for, for the kingdom of Phoenicia. They always have to import grain from, from you because I provide for you. Why do you worship him? It's almost ironic that they're tempted to worship Baal. And it's like that with any idol. The promises of any idol are empty promises. God is saying what Baal claims to be 
I am. What Baal claims to be I am. What any idol claims to be I am. All the promises that idols make are promises that only Yahweh, the God of the Bible, can fulfill. They are empty promises. Idols can only make empty promises because they are not living gods. They are dead gods. They are dead gods. Why are we so tempted, like Israel, to serve idols? Why are we so tempted to run after the empty promises? They can't fulfill them. They never could. Any fulfillment they can point to is stuff that God has given. They're pretenders. They're imposters. Okay. Um, So, what am I trying to say? God has slowed down the gauntlet to Baal. He's Provision is offensive to Baal because it exposes him as a false god. In other words, God is at war with the gods in your life. Turn to your neighbor and say, God is at war with the gods in your life. God is at war with the gods in your life. And... If you are tempted to think that, that you, you, you're very faithful to God and you never have any idols, you don't know yourself very well. Martin, I think it was John Calvin who said, the heart of man is a factory of idols. And it's true. We so naturally and so easily, because of our fallen state, look to other things for provision, look to worship other things. Look to serve other things. Look to, look to find our significance, our identity, and our fulfillment in other things. Things other than God. Things other than Yahweh, the God of the Bible. But God is at war with the gods in our lives. And God will always provide in such a way that it will destroy. In a way designed to destroy our dependence on other sources. And cause us to worship Him more. So... God's provision is offensive to Baal because it exposes him as a pretender. But God's prov- so we said God's provision is offended to us because it ends to make sure that we not don't worship the provision, but that we worship God, the provider. It's, it's offensive to Baal because it exposes him as a pretender, but it's also offensive to the proud because it's by grace. God's provision... Let me, let me actually just read you a, this little portion again. God says to to Elijah while he's at the brook. So then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. And he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gates of the city, behold, the widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, You know, give me some water and some bread and so on. Um, and this woman says to him, listen, yeah, <laughs> especially when you ask for the bread, he says, listen, I've, I've nothing baked. I've got a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. I'm going to go. I'm gathering some sticks now. I'm going to go bake some bread for me and my son. We're going to eat it and we're going to die. <laughs> All other provision will eventually cause you to die. But look what, what Elijah says. He says, that's fine. Go and do exactly as you said. But then he says, but first, 
Make a little cake of bread for me. Bring it to me and then make something for you and your son. And you know what the outcome of that is? In, uh, in verse 15 it says, And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. A meal that would have been flour and oil that would have been enough for one meal, to make one meal that they could eat and then die, ended up feeding not only Elijah, but the widow and her whole household, the son as well, for many days until the drought was ended. Can you see what's going on here? Can you see what this text is telling us? God was saying, Elijah, I'm going to provide for you through this widow. I'm going to provide through this widow. Notice that God's provision through you is God's provision to you. God's provision through you is God's provision to you. Don't tell me you've never experienced this. I know you have. Many of us have gone on missions. You go on missions, you take the gospel, you minister to other people, you serve other people, and you come back, and what do you say? I received more than I gave. I've come back so excited, I've come back so encouraged because I received more than I gave. God's provision through me to people who didn't know Him was actually God's provision to me through people who didn't know Him. (laughs) Just like this widow didn't know Him. God's provision through you is God's provision to you. Isn't that powerful? I've experienced this as a pastor. I've discovered over the years, like Rochelle said, been in the ministry for 16 odd years now and i didn't understand this at the beginning but more and more i discovered that god's provision through me to other people is actually god's provision to me god didn't make me a pastor primarily for your sakes or only for your sakes he also made me a pastor for my sake (laughs) so i need to study the bible more than all of you I need to feed on God's word more, and that's why God made me a pastor. And yes, he does provide for you when I minister the word of, the God, of, of God to you, but it provides for me. It provides for me. God knew I needed that. God's provision through me is actually God's provision to me. Well, Kurt, isn't that true for worshipers, guys who lead worship? You provide a service to the church, and God provides through you an opportunity to worship God, helps you, uses you to facilitate worship. But you benefit the most. God's provision through you is God's provision to you. We're, um, we just recently bought a house here in Joburg. So we're settling down after three years, <laughs> you know, getting our roots in here. Hopefully God will allow us to, to stay here for, for a good many years to come. Um, don't boo, don't boo. <laughs> we want a new pastor. <laughs> You're stuck with me. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> um, so we, we've actually been praying about this for a while. Um, like, you know, Rochelle said, it was, it was hard for her. You know, it's, it's easy for her to say, you can have it all, Lord. But then when God said, you know, go into the ministry, you know, she was like, no, I married an engineer and I'm stuck with a pastor. But, <laughs> 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 the same thing or similar thing happened um, when, when we moved to Job, where God actually this time spoke to me and not to her. 
Because when, when we went into the ministry, God spoke to her and said, you must lay your Isaacs, on, your Isaacs on the altar. He didn't speak to me, so I had to submit to my wife and the words she received from the Lord. And I did, praise God. <laughs> but um, when we moved to Joburg, God actually spoke to me and not to her and said, God spoke very clearly to me and said, you must go to Joburg. I want you here. I want you to come and build here. Um, continue building what has, what has been built. And um, we moved into, we rented a place, and God actually was very good to us. We, we rented a place in Blegauri, and it cost us about 11, 11,500 a month, which in that area for a three-bedroom place is not much at all. I mean, most of the places are 14,000. Even then, you know, it was 14,000 and upwards. So it was very affordable. Nice place, no, nothing wrong with the place. Uh, as, you know, one bathroom, which was a bit tricky, you know, between six of us living in there. Um, but, um, you know, it, it always felt, you know, okay, I'm paying, what, around 130,000 rand a month on someone else's bond, you know. And I'm thankful for the place, but when you think about it like that, well, oh, sorry, 130,000 a year on someone else's bond, I'd rather pay that 130,000 on my own bond. You know, it just feels like better stewardship to me, you know, because at the end of the day, I actually have something to show for it. You know, there's actually an house and asset to show for it. But more than that, you know, because God had spoken to me and not Rochelle, in the beginning it was a bit, and it was very sudden. It was like in a couple of weeks that we had to make the decision to come here. It, it was very sudden, so it, it was sort of a surprise jumped on, on Rochelle, you know. Uh, and then I heard from the Lord and she didn't. So it was, it initially it was difficult for her to come, but, but she came, you know, and, and has been serving faithfully. And, um, you know, the traffic that freaked her out, you know, she's actually driving in Joburg now and, 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 and all that. But, but I knew... Rushal would only really settle in properly, you know, if we get our own house. It's, it's like we can nest crop, you know, so that she can have a place to make her own. And so I've been praying for at least the, the last two years, Lord, won't you please give us our own place? We know we can't afford it. We, we you know, we, we don't, we, we don't have a deposit to put down, you know. <laughs> you know, places, you know, we don't want to live outside the N1 because then you eat all the traffic and then it takes like hours to get, we want to actually live in Blegari or Linden, you know, sort of that area, but the places are kind of expensive there, we, we know we can't afford it, but won't you please provide for us, and, you know, to make a long story short, um, my, my brother's um, neighbor, who was about 78 years old, he passed away, and he had three children, one in England, one in America, and one in Australia, and they, my brother said, listen, this house is in, in a deceased estate, why don't you go before before the state agents you know discover this place? Why don't you go and talk to the to the children? The one the one daughter is here. Why don't you go and talk to her and, and, and see? And you know, to make a long story short, I, I arrived there. We walked through the house, and this lady was actually a Christian as well. And we stood before the garage and said, when she heard I was a pastor, she said, "Now I want you to have this house." And she sang a hymn, you know, there in front of the garage. And we took hands and she prayed and said, "God, if it's at all possible, I want any of them to have this house, this house that I grew up in. I want them to have it." And to make a long story short, I mean, we put in an offer that was not a very high offer, you know, that was quite a low offer. Okay, the house was a fixer-upper, like a serious fixer-upper. I mean, you, you walk to the, the gutters and you can put your fingers through the gutters, you know, they kind of rusted badly. <laughs> but we put in a price that was very low for that area, and that, but that we could afford, and, and they accepted it. They accepted it. And then, you know, Trevor and Sharon, because I'm not the best handyman in the world. My, my brother is going to be my neighbor now. He is. <laughs> Praise God for a brother, a big brother who can <laughs> help you with stuff like that. 
But, but I knew I wouldn't be able to fix this house because it's, it's really a serious fixer-upper, you know. Uh, and we have limited cash, you know. So, so Trevor and Sharon, they, they said, no, they'll walk through and they'll give us some quotes. And, and Trevor um, actually um, agreed to do the project management for us. Basically, f- you know, for free, you know, while they're doing work there, they'll also do the project management and, and charge us no extra, which is a, a massive blessing. Um, and, and at one stage, you know, when we were sort of just in the planning phase of this, you know, I, I thought, you know, I don't want to sort of impose on Trevor, you know. So I said to him, Trevor, you know, I, I'd like to give you the work if you want it, but I don't want to force work on you that you can do without, you know. Um, and, and did you just feel, you know, okay, it's Henny, he's my pastor, and I have to help him, you know, so I'll, I'll do it for him. And, and Trevor said, no, no, actually, business is, is very quiet. We can do with the extra work. And God's provision through Trevor to me to do what I couldn't do, manage the project, was also God's provision to Trevor, which gave him the extra work that he needed at that, at that stage. And that's how God works. And that's how he works with this widow. God's provision through her to Elijah is also God's provision to her. And that's how it works in our lives as well. Let, let's, just, let's just draw out the implications of this for business. That means that the best way to do business is to try and help serve and provide for other people. The best services, the best businesses help other people. They serve other people and they get paid for it. And the better you serve, the better you help, the better you do in business because God's provision through you is God's provision to you. See, that's a biblical principle you can practically apply in your business. You want to do a good business? Then try hard to serve and help other people. And be God's provision to them. Huh? It's a bit counterintuitive. Because the world says, no, look out for number one. You know, shark people, you know, overcharge them, you know, underserve them. You know, cut the costs and, 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 and um, you know, maximize the profits. And, 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 the, and the Bible says, no, help other people, serve other people, be God's provision to other people. God's vessel through which provision comes because God's provision through you is God's provision to you. Um. So, God, God's provision through you is God's provision to you. Now, God's provision is also by grace, and I want to sort of end by this. Um, notice, and, and this is why it's so offensive. It must have been offensive to Elijah. It certainly was offensive to Israel in the time of Elijah. We know it was offensive to Israel in the time of Jesus, because when Jesus refers back to this in Luke chapter 4, and I'll read that in a moment, the people want to stone him. He says there were many widows in Israel in the time of, of, of the drought. But God sent Elijah to none of them, but to this widow, Gentile widow in Zarephath. Oh, and the people want to take up stones. They want to stone Jesus for this. Because it's so offensive to proud people who feel they're entitled to God's salvation. When God, by grace, gives it to someone who doesn't deserve it. And through someone who doesn't deserve it, no horse. It's offensive to the proud because it's by grace. You see, this, this lady was a Gentile. She wasn't a Jew. And, and like I said, this was so offensive to the Jews in Jesus' time that when Jesus mentions this, that, he, that there were many widows in Israel at the time, but Elijah got sent to a Gentile woman in Zarephath. 
They get so angry, they, they literally want to kill him. They want to stone him. They drag him out of the city, and they're about to stone him when he miraculously walks through them and, and escapes. It's so offensive to them because she's a Gentile. No, we are God's chosen people. God may not work except through us. No, if God works by grace, he can work through whomever he wants to. And in fact, God delights in working through outsiders and not just insiders. Ethnic outsiders like this Gentile woman who wasn't a Jew. Um, But she's not only a, a Gentile, she's a woman. She's a woman. I mean, even in our modern enlightened society, now any woman in the workplace knows that it's a little bit harder for a woman than for a man because most men, even enlightened modern men, feel that um, women can be dependent on them, but they cannot be dependent on women. That's what they think. Uh, they. <laughs> That's what they think. <laughs> right? The male ego, you know, sort of struggles with this a bit. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, and here comes God. He not only provides through a Gentile, but through a Gentile woman. But she's not only a Gentile woman, she's a widow. She's like the most marginalized that you get. I mean, in those days, women couldn't work, so she had no source of income. The, the son that she had wasn't an adult son who could work. It was a, a little boy. She carried him, you'll see later, she carries him to, to Elijah. So she's completely marginalized. She, she has no source of income. She's completely destitute. And God chooses not only to provide to her, but through her to Elijah. And it's offensive because it's by grace. Because God doesn't use us because we deserve it. God uses us despite the fact that we don't. God's provision to us is not based on our performance. It precedes our performance. I mean, if you even look at this story, uh, and not only that, let me just, I mean, here's here's the cherry. I didn't read this, but if you go on reading later, the, the the sort of portion just after this, this, this woman's, this widow's son actually dies. And she, she brings him, she carries him to Elijah and she says, um, you know, what's going on here? I thought you came to bring a blessing. Have you, have you come to bring a curse? Have you come to remind me, she says, of my sin? She doesn't deny that she's a sinner. So she's a Gentile, she's a woman, she's a widow, she's a sinner. And God's grace comes to her and through her to Elijah. And that's offensive, so offensive to the Jews in Jesus' day that they want to stone him. They want to kill him for it. Because to the proud, God's provision is always offensive because it's by grace. And grace means it's not based on whether you deserve it. Uh, Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. Grace is the opposite of earning. Grace is what you receive when you cannot earn anything. That's grace. And because of that, it's offensive to people who feel, I can earn it. I want to earn it. I don't take handouts. I don't want any free lunches. I want to work. I'm a self-made man. I got here by working for everything I have. I don't take any handouts. So often... We say, no, I'm not like that until you get into that position where you have to receive something from someone. I remember um, in Somerset West, there was this strike on, you know, with the petrol, the guys who, who fill your tank with petrol, 
they were all on strike. And I went to this one full station, and um, the guy who uh, was working there was, was the owner. Yeah, I mean, he had to work. Was all the all his staff that were, were on strike, you know. So he had to work. So he came to my car and he filled up the, the tank. And afterwards, I did what I always do with all guys who fill up my tank. I gave a tip, five rand. And he, he was so offended. He looked at me with this offended. He said, keep it. And he walked away. <laughs> you, you, if you ask that guy, are you proud, too proud to receive handouts? He would have said, no, no, I'm humble. Until he had to receive a tip. The same tip that his workers received every day and say thank you for. He couldn't receive it because of pride. You see, proud people cannot receive grace. It's impossible for the proud to receive grace because the proud want to earn it. They want to deserve it. So God's provision of grace, because it's by grace, will always offend the proud. Look at this. It says, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. And when he comes to the widow and says, listen, make me some bread, she says, as the Lord your God lives. I, I, I almost think, you know, remember at the beginning, um, Elijah said to, to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, it will not rain or dew until, you know, at, at my word. I, I wonder whether this widow actually, because this is months later, you know, remember in between Elijah spent all that time next, next to the brook. I wonder if this widow actually heard about that, you know. Elijah confronting, you know, this little prophet from nowhere, you know. We don't even know who his parents are, you know. From nowhere, we don't even know what tribe he's from. He comes and he, he tunes the king. And then he does a mic drop and he runs, you know. I wonder whether she heard of that a couple of months later. And that's why she says, as the Lord your God lives, you know. Uh, so she knew maybe about the drought and the word that the drought will only end at Elijah's word. Maybe. But, but here's the thing. She says, as the Lord your God lives. Not the Lord our God or the Lord my God, the Lord your God. She wasn't even serving Yahweh yet. Here's the thing. God turns to you before you turn to him. God was turning to this widow before she had even turned to him. Not only that, he says, I have commanded a widow in verse 9. I've commanded a widow at Zarephath to take care of you. She seems blissfully unaware of that command. <laughs> I mean, when Elijah comes and says, go and bake me some bread, she says, listen here, I don't have anything. I don't have enough to break you any bread. She seems blissfully aware of God's command to her. Yet, when the very next verse, after God saying, I've commanded a widow, Elijah goes to Zarephath, and right at the gate, outside the city, waiting for him, is the widow picking up sticks. Coincidentally. You see, God, God's command there is God's ordaining. And she, without knowing it, obeyed God's command. She was right at the place to meet the prophet. And God used what she had to bake him bread and to provide for him. But here's the point. God not only turns to us before we turn to him, but God speaks to us before we can even hear him. That's grace. That's God's grace. That's God's grace. And that's why it's offensive to people who don't like grace. So grace is opposed to effort, but not to... Uh, grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. It offends the proud because it precedes our performance. In, uh, let me just read that to you in, in Luke chapter 4. 
where Jesus does one of his first sermons in the synagogue in, in his hometown of Nazareth. And in Luke 4, verse 25 and 26, it says the following. Jesus says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut for three, for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And when they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill uh, on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But he passed through their midst and went away. See, even in Jesus' day, God's provision is still by grace. God's provision through Jesus is by grace. And God works through people who are like widows, who have nothing to offer, seemingly. Who have nothing to recommend themselves. Who are outcasts. Who are lowly. Who are not necessarily the the most highly esteemed in society because he does it by grace. So if you are such a person, if you say, okay, my pedigree is not that grace, you know, I'm not so competent, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not, you qualify. And if you, are quali- if, if you are very competent and you have a great pedigree and you are rich, you still qualify by the same grace. <laughs> by the same grace. You see... God wants to provide to us and through us by His grace. And we must embrace not only receiving grace from outsiders, but being the outsiders who provide the grace. We mustn't be afraid to be those outsiders. Now, just one or two things I want to say about faith. This woman... Even before she was serving God, she had the faith that Israel didn't have in Yahweh. She, God says, I've commanded this widow to provide. And Elijah said, before, before you go, go and do what you said. You know, you said you're going to bake some bread for, your, for you and your son and then you're going to eat it and die. Go and do that, but first bring for me. And it was, God, through Elijah, was asking her to go against her maternal instinct to provide for her son first. And to trust God enough that the not enough that she had would be enough. (laughs) Not only for Elijah first, but then also for her. And when she took that step of faith and trusted God in that way, it was enough. That which, which was only enough to feed her and her son for one meal ended up being enough to feed Elijah, her and her son for months to come. For many months to come. You see, faith gives what it can't afford when the Lord commands it. Faith is willing to give what it can't afford to give when the Lord has commanded because it has more faith in God than in that thing. But not only that, Elijah says, give me the bread first. Faith always gives to God first. Faith always makes God the first receiver. In In fact, I will take it so far as as to say this. Whatever, whatever you give to God 
will go a lot further than if you keep it for yourself. Whatever you give to God first will benefit you more than if you kept everything for yourself. Whatever you give to God first will last you longer and actually meet your needs more than what you have. Because what you have often can't meet your needs in any case. And that's why by faith we must always make God the first receiver. That's why by faith we must always first give to God. Because that expresses our trust in God. Saying that my trust is not in this little you know, jar of flour and, 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 and a bit of oil that I have. My trust is in God who can not only provide that and has not only provided that, but who can, prov- who can multiply it. Who can actually make my not enough be enough to meet not only my needs, but the needs of other people through me. That is the kind of faith God is calling us to have. Amen? That is is the, the way of the gospel. How can one life, the sacrificing, the giving of one life to God, be enough to save the many lives? Well, in Jesus it was. It was enough. And not only was he resurrected, but we too will be resurrected with him. Because God makes that which seems to be not enough to be enough. By his grace and when we give it in faith. By trusting him. Amen. And that's what God wants to do to us and through us. I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. Just, just focus on the Lord. You know, you know what, you, what you're seeking, what you're looking to for provision. Are you looking at God's hand? Are you seeking his hand or his face? Are you, are you only seeking his provision or are you seeking him as the provider? Do you have more trust and faith in the stuff that he's given you than you have in him in himself? And if we're honest with ourselves, all of us sometimes fall into that trap. And if that's you, then I just want you to close your eyes and just say to the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry for trusting more in your provision than in trusting, than trusting in you as the provider. Just repent of it. Just say, Lord, I'm done following your provision. I'm going to follow you as the provider. And just maybe even thank him for giving, for providing in such an offensive way that it weans you, that it weans you of every other source of provision so that you know you're dependent on him and that you trust in only him. Just in your own words, just pray that. Just giving us a little test 
um, how we can test whether we trust Him more than we trust the stuff that He's given us. Can we give to Him first? Even when it seems that we won't have enough left. Can I give to Him first? Or is my natural reaction, no Lord, then there won't be enough left for me and mine. Lord, surely I must take care of my children first. But can we give to God first, trusting that He is enough? And when we're in Him and we are obediently following Him, then He'll make what we need, what we have, to be enough for all our needs. Maybe not all our greeds, but certainly all our needs. Are you able to, in faith, like this widow, give to God first? If you know you're not, just be honest about it with God and say, Lord, help me, I want to. I want to trust you so much that I can give to you first. Even when it seems a bit silly and impractical and foolish even. I want to be able to show my trust by giving to you first. Bring your heart before the Lord and just deal deal with the Lord in that. opportunity to really deal with these things because there's grace now to deal with it really engage with the Lord don't don't think just hearing the sermon is going to solve the issues addressed through this word just knowing it doesn't solve the problem just like knowing about bread doesn't fill your stomach you actually got to eat the bread before it fills your stomach No, no good you just smell the bread you know that doesn't fill you that doesn't nourish you you've got to eat the bread and you know I, I, I've broken open the bread and I've let you smell it now but now I'm saying take it and eat it you know for crying out loud use it make it yours internalize it now because there's grace to do it now make sure your trust is in him trust Baal or any other idol don't trust yourself don't trust even in God's provision trust in God Father God, we just want to thank you for your grace, Lord, and that you come and challenge our hearts, Lord, to trust you fully. Lord, and we just repent, Lord, of where we have not trusted you fully. Please forgive us, Lord. Lord, and we can see that whether it's your provision, whether it's false gods, Lord, whatever it is, Lord, nothing compares to you, and we don't want to 
We, we don't want any God substitutes in our lives. We don't want anything to take your place. We want to trust wholly and fully in you. Because you are God. You are the only God. And you are God anywhere and everywhere. We trust you. We trust you. If you, were, if you loved us so much that you were willing to give your life for us on the cross, then we can safely trust you. And we know, Lord, that you never ask us to give you more than you have already given us. You've given so much to us and for us. You've given yourself for us. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that in light of that, we can just have so much freedom and liberty to give to you and to give to one another. Help us to do that. Help us to be like you in that way. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jarberg.